Hi everyone, I'm your host NG and welcome to the 18th episode of the podcast, Sounds About Right, audiobooks to help us understand the world. On this episode, I sat down with Kevin McCain, he's the author of the book, Understanding How Science Explains the World. This book explores the nature and contours of scientific explanation, how such explanations are evaluated, as well as how they lead to knowledge and understanding. The book also provides an introduction to scientific explanation and also tackles misconceptions and misunderstandings. Now, this book isn't available in audiobook form. However, it was so compelling and the title of it encapsulates to me what this podcast is about. So I just had to sit down with Kevin and have a talk about it. It was great discussing the book with him. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So to begin with, Kevin, the first question I'd like to ask you is, what inspired your idea to write the book? It's kind of interesting. The uh, series editor for this, the whole Understanding Life series at Cambridge University Press uh, is a friend of mine. We've actually co-authored a, a book together and some papers. The series is focused specifically on issues in the life sciences, so kind of better understanding aspects of the life sciences. So a lot of the books in the series are things like you know, uh, understanding coronavirus, for instance, understanding heredity, understanding evolution, you know, those sorts of things. But the series editor contacted me and said, it'd be great to have something that's a little broader, something on explanation in general, which is an area that I work on because I work primarily in epistemology and philosophy of science. And it's kind of general philosophy of science that I work on. So things that apply across the sciences. And so he said, you know, why don't you put together a proposal if you're interested in this? It'd be great to have something in the series on explanation in science geared toward explanation in the life sciences. That's kind of what gave me the idea is he said, hey, I'm doing this series and this sort of book would be good. And I thought you might be a good person to write it. Ah, So when you wrote the book, were you coming from the perspective of these are a lot of the things that you already knew? Or was there even some perspective of yours that was challenged? A lot of it was views that I already held. So I already had positions on. But some things, especially during the process, were developed and I learned about and were kind of challenged. And part of that, it, it comes from the process with this sort of book. So even though the book is geared toward a general audience, which hopefully it, it, it does well in that regard, it is published by Cambridge University Press. And so the, the process, even though all the books in the series, including this one, are geared toward a general audience, they still go through a peer review process which can help push you on things. So as I mentioned, the series editor said, why don't you put together a proposal? But even at that point, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that the book would be accepted. It was put together a proposal that will send out to external reviewers who will give feedback and decide and, and make a pronouncement on whether they think you should move forward with this project. And so there was feedback at that level, uh, you know, at that first stage of, okay, here's some things you need to consider and then after I wrote the book, which is common in academic writing, this followed the same procedure there was finish the manuscript, send it in, and then still get another round of review. And so they do the peer review process on both ends uh, of the project. And so that was really helpful because uh, at the initial stage, some of the peer reviewers were uh, suggesting things like, okay, you, you're planning to talk about this topic, but I don't see any mention of this or that. And so that that led me to, okay, I need to investigate some of these things. 
And then at this, the, the latter end of the project was, okay, here's my manuscript. And then there was some feedback on, well, you know, you talk about this or that, but what about these other things? So one of the things that came up, which I hadn't really considered before, and I talk about in the book, is this distinction between, especially in the biological sciences, between historical explanations versus more experimental explanations. And there's, uh, at least among some, there's a thought that historical explanations are inherently inferior to experimental explanations. And in the book, I kind of talk about that sort of picture and why I think it's incorrect. And that was something I learned through the, the research because I hadn't really thought of that distinction before. So just to touch on a point that you made earlier, is it because you're coming from the field of academia that you may have a bit more scrutiny when it comes to the process of creating a manuscript and handing it in for peer review? Right. Yeah, exactly. I think that's uh, a big factor with it being published by uh, a university press, uh, in particular Cambridge University Press. So their view is, uh, I think with a lot of books that are geared towards a, a popular audience, the goal is simply, will this sell? Right. Cambridge is, of course, looking at that, but they're also looking at, does this meet our standards for quality in terms of, even though it's not an academic book, does it meet some certain uh, standards for academic rigor and so on, in addition to being presented in a way that's accessible. And so that's why you have this, you know, you get approval at the proposal stage to start work on it, but then you have to, after you're finished with it, you send it in and you have to get past peer review again before it goes on to press. Sounds like a, a nerve-wracking process, but I mean, you made it through, so. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask as well, so what perspective of others do you think will be challenged once they've read the book as well? I think some of it will depend on what sort of background they, they already bring to the book. So for instance, I think some readers will be challenged in terms of one of the misunderstandings that I try to clear up in the book is some people have the view that if a particular scientific theory or a particular domain of science doesn't account for everything, then it's not real science. So I don't think you get as much of that, you know, in the UK where you're at, but here in the US, there's often a lot of resistance to evolutionary theory. Part of that, I think, is just misunderstanding what the theory says and what it is and isn't inconsistent with. But another part is people will push and say, well, there are these unanswered questions. Right. You know, current evolutionary theory doesn't tell us, you know, how things started or or give us an example of uh, organisms that are in between humans and, say, more distant ancestors. And so they'll say, since it doesn't explain all this, it's got to be false or not real science. And so I think people with that sort of background reading the book, that will be challenged by pointing out that, for instance, no scientific theory answers every single question. So I, I think that can challenge those folks. And then, you know, others might have other things that are, that'll be challenged. For instance, if you thought, for instance, some people have a, a sort of view that, you know, maybe science really doesn't get at the truth. There are certain people that have views that science is simply a useful tool, but not really about the truth. I, I try to challenge that a bit by saying, you know, what we're really after is how the world actually is. And we're trying to give descriptions of the world. Those sorts of things might be challenged too, but I, I think a lot of it depends on what someone already brings to the table. So hopefully it'll challenge a lot of people in different ways. 
<laughs> That's a brilliant segue, Kevin, because in fact, one of the things I wanted to ask you is if you could explain how a false theory can lead to an accurate explanation. Yeah, that's a great question. This is one of the ones that could also challenge people too. If you say, well, wait a minute, if the theory is false, how is that going to accurately describe things? I think the way it does it is we, we have to think about various ways a, a theory or a model might be false. So any sort of model that we have, which in one sense, theories and models are very closely connected, right? So they're, they're kind of giving us a picture of the world that captures certain parts of the world and the way the world is, but not all, right? So for instance, I, I think I used an example here of like a, a subway map, right? So it's going gonna, it's gonna to tell us where particular trains go, where they stop, and so on. But it's not going to give us all the information that's in the world, right? So it's not going to tell us, say, the color of the train maybe or what kind of wheels the train has and so on. So it's going to abstract and leave some information out. So in one sense, that sort of model is incorrect right? because it doesn't tell us certain information. Another sort of model might have more of an idealization where there's a factor that's kind of irrelevant. And so we'll put in a false answer just to show its irrelevance. So this happens sometimes in models in biology and evolutionary models sometimes biologists will want to look at and philosophers of biology too will want to look at populations but they'll assume that the population is infinitely large clearly that that can't be the case because there are no infinite living populations but what that does so even though that model is false in that way that helps us get at a truth that it highlights that for the particular phenomena being investigated population size doesn't matter Right? So sometimes a false theory can help us get to the truth or correctly explain something in part by pointing out certain aspects that don't matter at all, right? because we can falsify those or leave them out entirely. Right? So the subway map can leave out entirely you know, how much the train weighs because it doesn't matter for the particular purpose. Right? And so in a sense, it, it's tricky because um, it's not the falsity that's doing the work, if that makes sense. It's, it's what the, the, the abstraction or the idealization, what that's pointing out as relevant or not relevant that's doing the work. So in one sense, the false theory is doing the work, but it's the true facts that the false theory points us to that's, I think, really doing a lot of the work. Rather than the things that we don't know about or... Right, yeah, it's, it's kind of highlighting that these aspects are really important and it's highlighting maybe these others aren't, right? So we can highlight that they're not important in two ways, or at least two ways. One is just not talking about them at all, right? So like the subway map, we don't talk about the, the how much the train weighs because it's irrelevant to explaining how to get from one place to another. Uh, but in the another way we might highlight that something matters or doesn't is like the population model example, where we say, well, let's assume the population's infinite. That's a way of highlighting that the size of the population is irrelevant to what's being explained. Another thing I wanted to ask you is how much would you say does science hold as a key to us understanding ourselves? And secondly, if you're able to answer as well, is one able to believe wholly in science as well as being devoutly religious? Great, great questions. Um, 
So your, your first question is, how much will science help us to know about ourselves? That's, a, that's an excellent question. So I think, just a disclaimer, I don't cover that in the book at all. So, you know, if someone's listening, they're like, all right, where's this at in the book? It's not, <laughs> you know, so, so don't look for the chapter there that's, you know. But yeah, I, th- I think that science can really help us definitely understand about our place in the physical universe, right? How our bodies work, all sorts of things like that. How we see, you know, from vision and so on and all these things, which are really deep and important things. I'm not of the position, though, that or I don't accept the position that science will tell us all that there is to know about ourselves. In part, that's because science is, to my mind, a descriptive discipline, right? So it describes things, how they are, and so on, and describes only physical aspects of reality, right? So it only it talks about those. However, there are important aspects, I think, to us, you know, as people that are not going to be captured by science. So for instance, science can tell us how the world is, but it can't tell us how the world ought to be, right? So science might be able to give us clues about how people behave and maybe even why they behave as they do, but it can't tell us how they ought to behave, right? So it's going to miss the, this moral dimension, which I think is a key component to us, right? And it's also, so for instance, it's not going to tell us things about like justice, or why we should care about justice. But clearly these matter and we should. So it's gonna leave out answers to questions about meaning and morality, any sort of normative thing that gets at how things should be rather than just how they are. Because science is gonna tell us how things are and maybe how they could be, but it's not gonna tell us that answers to how things should be. So I think it's gonna leave that. And, and I think those are really important aspects of just us as people right? Morality is huge to us. Meaning is, is really important. It's, science isn't going to tell us, here's the kind of person I should be. Here's how I should act. Right? It might help us, and I think it will help us say, once we've decided how we should act and what we should do, it can definitely help us achieve those goals, right? Help us figure out, okay, if, say, we should be concerned about climate change, which, spoiler, we should. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> science can't tell us that we should be concerned about that, but it can tell us once we've decided that we are and should be concerned, maybe things that we can do to help with it, right? So that's how it can help us a lot. To your second question, which is also a great question, can someone be fully committed to science and then also deeply religious person? I think the answer to that is yes. You know, with qualification, I guess it depends on religious views that a person has, but there are none that I'm aware of. In the U.S., we often hear about this sort of conflict between, say, evolution and Christianity or something like that. Those conflicts, I think, are merely apparent, right? Or they're, they're conflicts between very literalistic readings of particular components of the Bible and understandings of evolutionary theory. And I think that there might be a conflict with those, but that just tells us that there's a problem on the understanding side, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I, you know, I don't think there's, there's necessarily a conflict. And I point to things, so I, I sometimes talk about this with, with my students. You can look at, say, someone like uh, Francis Collins, who I think he, I don't know if he still is, but he was the director of the Human Genome Project. So of course, obviously accepts evolution, right, and, and mapping the human genome, but is a Christian and sees the two as integrated, not as in any conflict. And he's got a popular level book about this that came out several years back, which is a, it's a good book. I actually read it a few years ago. His position doesn't seem at all irrational or incoherent or anything at all. So yeah, I don't think there has to be a conflict. 
Mm, not fair. Um, uh, thanks for asking that, by the way, Kevin, because I know yeah, that yeah. kind of went like left field as well. It's not in the book, so <laughs> I do appreciate that. Something that is in the book, though, is that you mentioned in the early chapter, uh, one of the early chapters, actually, the phenomena of science. And I wanted to know, when did that ha moment happen for you? When did you have that kind of aha moment when it came to science? Hmm. So the, um, just so I'm clear on the question, so this sort of um, aha moment as in understanding some aspect mm -hmm. or like that. Yeah, um, I think to some degree I'm, I'm still working on having that moment, <laughs> you know, because there's, there's so much to science and, and, I, and I approach it, you know, I, I'm a philosopher by trade, so I, I'm kind of an outsider that tries to learn what science I can. But I'm always fascinated by when I just learn some of these things from science. So even a small thing from the book, when I, I mentioned this example in a few places, this idea of what's referred to as the Fisher ratios, right? So the sex ratios um, amongst organisms in sexually reproductive organisms. It's just wild to me that it makes sense once you think about it, but that the evolutionary pressures on populations are such that it doesn't really matter what proportion you start off with male to females that assuming you know the population makes it there's not an outside disaster or something it will work to an equilibrium point right it will eventually through a few generations get to where there's an equal number regardless of how different they start and that's just wild you know when you think about that that that's just how it works out and so there i think there's lots of those moments where you're just amazed by things that science discovers, uh, or that, I guess, more carefully, that scientists discover and share with us. Absolutely. I, I think, I can't remember where I heard this saying before. You might have heard it too. Uh, I don't know how much truth there is to it. So for things that science can't explain, people bring in philosophy. And they'd say that philosophy is the father of science. How much do you disagree or agree with that statement? It sounds right to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, it sounds right. I mean, uh, there are some, and philosophers included, because we're a, we're a very uh, mixed bunch, but there are some philosophers who think that, that science explains everything or will explain everything, and anything that's not explainable by science is either nonsense or not worth explaining. I'm not of that view, right, as you probably guessed, because we already mentioned these things like I don't think any normative discipline is going to be explained by science. It's not going to give us those answers. So I'm definitely not in that camp. But I, so I do think there are, there are lots of issues that science brings up that are philosophical questions that aren't answerable by the methods of science. In, in the book I talk about this, I think there's not one particular scientific method. I think there are many methods of science, but there is kind of a general idea that science is employing methods of observation and so on and looking at and only assuming things about the physical world. So trying not to assume any larger metaphysical views, right? And so I think when you do that, there are certain things you're just not going to be able to answer. So for instance, like we mentioned, you can't test whether an action is right or wrong, right? There's no lab experiment you can do to determine whether this is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. The closest we can get is maybe doing some psychological experiments to see what will people do in a certain situation? What will they think about it? But again, that's not telling us whether the action's right or wrong. That's telling us, will people do it? And what do people think about it? Which is different questions. Whereas 
I think that deeper question of is the action itself right or wrong is a philosophical question. So there, that's going to be there. And then also questions that arise from science itself and the practice of science. So for instance, one of the things I talked about in the book is how do we move from you know, a good explanation to actually having knowledge or understanding? That's not going to be a question of science, right? Scientists are going to presuppose an answer to that sort of philosophical question, right? They're going to presuppose that, well, say the probability has to be a certain amount before it's reasonable to believe or whatever. But that's not itself a scientific question. That's a prior question. Uh, it's a philosophical and, and maybe a mathematical question, right? But, and even there, it's not going to be fully mathematical. Mathematics is going to get us the answers about what the probabilities are. But again, we're going to have this normative question, right? Of should you believe something is true when the probability is this high? Or should you wait until it's higher or not? That's not answerable by science. That's going to be a philosophical question. So I think that's right. And, I, and, and to the other part of that quote, I do think philosophy is kind of gives rise to these, to science. Because if you look just historically, the people who were doing science, you know, Aristotle is arguably one of the first scientists and some of the earlier ancient Greeks like Thales and so on. But they were all philosophers. And, I, and you know, and as always, I like to point out to my students, Isaac Newton held a chair of natural philosophy because, you know, early on we didn't have the term scientist. So they were all engaged in what they referred to as natural philosophy. So they were doing philosophy that was involving some observation and looking at the world rather than just theoretical. So I think in a sense it, it really does, there is this tight connection where science raises new questions, some of which are philosophical, so philosophers look at it. But I also think in philosophy we raise questions and then later it becomes discovered that, oh, wait a minute, either the question can be answered empirically or it would be helpful to do empirical research, in which case often it gets transferred to science. That was Kevin McCain, author of Understanding How Science Explains the World. The book is available now in the UK and is scheduled to be released in the US later this year, on the 13th of October, 2022. A big thanks to Kevin for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. I'll catch you on the next.